Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, the word, at least for the next couple of days. James Blind is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Also, Lisa Jansen is producing for KGNW. We're going to start out the day looking at some of the day's headlines, but we're also going to share a conversation with Jeff Pack. He's the author of Witness to History, the story of Gideon's International. You know those Bibles you find in the hotel drawers where there's a lot more to this organization than you might think. This starts from the very beginning. We'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He is a manager. He is a specialist in election law reform and Senior Legal Fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the uh, motion that was filed by the state of Texas, and some 17 states have um, issued uh, um, a brief in favor of this effort to try to overturn isn't the right word, but we'll get the right language uh, when we talk with Hans von Spakovsky uh, in order to um, ask the Supreme Court to look at what happened in four states Uh, suggesting that the way decisions were made about how the election was going to be carried out was unconstitutional and therefore should not be allowed to stand. So that's going to be an interesting conversation. That'll be at five o'clock with Hans von Spakovsky. First, the headlines. President-elect Joe Biden on Tuesday announced a three-part plan to combat the coronavirus pandemic in the first 100 days of his administration. Speaking in his hometown of Wilmington, Delaware, as he formally unveiled his team of top health officials, he emphasized masks, vaccinations, opening schools. Uh, These are the three key goals of my first 100 days. Again, wearing a mask for the first 100 days, vaccinations and opening schools. The president-elect stressed, I'm absolutely convinced that in 100 days we can change the course of the disease and change life in America for the better. Well, good luck with that. He spelled out first the first time how he would implement his mask mandate, which he previously announced for the first 100 days of his administration. The presumed president-elect explained that, Uh, It will start with my signing an order on day one to require masks where I can under the law, like federal buildings, interstate travel on planes, trains and buses. I'll also be working with the governors and mayors to do the same in their states and their cities. We're going to require masks wherever possible. In other words, no change. And the presumed president-elect urged people to help yourself, your family, your community, whatever your uh, politics or point of view, mask up for 100 days after we take office. 100 days to make a difference. It's not a political statement. It's a patriotic act, apparently referring to the patriotic act that we've all been engaged in for how many months now? Anyway, in other developments, President Trump says the coronavirus vaccines uh, will end the pandemic, and he touts the progress as a modern-day miracle. Representative Eric Swalwell is not celebrating. He suggested Tuesday that President Trump was behind Axios' bombshell report that revealed that he was one of several politicians who was entangled with someone suspected to be a Chinese spy. No, it's not a movie. It's not Mission Impossible. 
This is uh, Representative Eric Swalwell, a previous uh, candidate for the White House. Well, Axios reported on Monday that a Chinese national named Fang Fang or Christine Fang targeted up and coming local politicians, including Swalwell, out of California. Well, Fang reportedly took part in fundraising with for Swalwell's 2014 re-election campaign, although she didn't make donations, nor was there evidence of illegal contributions. Well, according to Axios, investigators became so alarmed at Fang's behavior and activities that they alerted Swalwell in 2015 to their concern and gave him a defensive briefing on the subject. Swalwell then cut off all ties with Fang and has not been accused of any wrongdoing, according to an official who spoke uh, to the outlet. So why this is a story is another question. Well, Senator Cotton says that uh, Wall Street CEOs are effectively lobbyists for communist China. They're lobbying to uh, be allowed to continue to use slave labor out of China. It benefits their consumers. Tucker Carlson asks, why is Eric Swalwell still in the House uh, committee, uh, House in Uh, Intelligence Committee after the Chinese spy revelations? Well, that's a pretty open question at this point. And after his uh, entanglement with a Chinese spy, Eric Swalwell warned of an influx of Russians in U.S. politics under Trump. Well, Texas Attorney General Paxson broke down the last-ditch election challenge before the Supreme Court, claiming unreliable results. The election integrity comes down to abiding by the Constitution, and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says that uh, Tuesday he intends to defend it. Well, the Attorney General filed an election integrity lawsuit against four U.S. states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin at the Supreme Court. Paxton's case, uh, it stands on the grounds of Article 2 of the Constitution. Some 17 uh, states have issued uh, supporting briefs in this case. The Supreme Court has cost out the, uh, rather tossed out the GOP bid to throw out uh, Pennsylvania's mail ballots without a hearing. And uh, Jonathan Turley says Trump is running out of runway after the Supreme Court rejected that bid. Well, critics are accusing CNN of publishing a Saudi propaganda piece hyping the nation's tourism and House Democrats photo op of a defeated incumbents was trolled by Senator McCarthy and a judge sided with restaurants over Los Angeles outdoor dining ban, according to reports. Well, a California restaurateur is vowing to fight for his restaurant, his livelihood and employees as the state bans outdoor dining. And Tesla's Elon Musk has confirmed his Texas move from California. Chinese factory gate prices have fallen at a slower pace in November. It's a sign the economy is recovering from COVID-19. Well, as mentioned, the Supreme Court rejected the effort to overturn Pennsylvania's election results. The chief brief, um, the court's brief, um, the order provided no reasoning, nor did it uh, note any dissenting votes. It was the first request to delay or overturn the results of the presidential election to reach the court. Now, courts, as we've discussed here before, are not inclined to overturn an election. And my guess is they're still not inclined to do so. What we can take from the order is that no justices disagreed with his decision. This is from another story. Generally, when one or more justices disagree, they will write a statement setting forth their views on why the emergency application should be granted. None did so in this case. And from Trump legal advisor Jenna Ellis, she says the Supreme Court only denied emergency injunctive relief in order uh, in the order. It did not deny cert. Well, meanwhile, more states have joined the Texas suit against Pennsylvania. Again, we'll talk more about that with Hans von Spakovsky in the next hour of today's program. 
Well, the Georgia Senate candidate Warnock is bragging in a tweet that he's a pro-choice pastor getting love from the far left, but not so much on the other side of the continuum. So not um, uh, really a follower of the actual Jesus, but the one you've conjured in your head. Got it. That's a Twitter comment from Eric Erickson. Ali Smith Stuckley says, I'm a pro-meat vegan. From Kaylee McEnany, she says, a pro-choice pastor, Genesis 1.27, Job 33.4, Psalm 119.73, and it goes on and on and on, ending with Galatians 1.5. Lila Rose says, this is grotesque. You don't preach Christ or the gospel. You preach the shedding of innocent blood of his children. How dare you use the name pastor? Well, California is seeking a recall of Governor Newsom. Uh, Jazz Shaw says that business owners are being hit equally hard, many of whom were only just getting up and running again after the last round of lockdowns. But this time, something seems different. Not all of them are willing to go gently into the good night, and many are rejoining uh, a push to recall Governor Newsom. It would take a lot of signatures to bring such a measure to fruition, but the number of people participating is one uh, once again surging. It'll be interesting to watch that. And business owners held a protest outside the home of Los Angeles County Supervisor Sheila Cool, demanding that she vote to repeal the outdoor dining ban that she was pushing the previous week. Among other reasons, demonstrators were upset with her because only hours after she voted in support of the ban, she went to her favorite restaurant and ate outdoors before the rule took effect. One chef says that he's going to keep his outdoor dining open. He's not the only one rebelling against the prohibition. Well, the ABC News headline, 158 people arrested for coronavirus violations at massive underground party at L.A. County authorities. Well, media highlighted a COVID violation in a story that included underage trafficking, making the violation of um, the underground party the priority over the five, par- you know, five paragraphs down, I should say, and several other violations before the story told us that authorities, authorities were able to rescue a 17-year-old human trafficking victim. Might want to flip that story just a bit. Well, breakdancing is officially an Olympic sport. Seeking to attract younger viewers for the International Games, ratings have flagged of late. The International Olympic Committee on Monday announced that breakdancing has uh, been added as a sport for the 2024 Games held in Paris. Are people still breakdancing? Is that something young people are still doing? Today is an an historic occasion, not only for B-boys and B-girls, but for all dancers around the world. Sean Tay, president of the World Dance Sport Federation, says. Uh, From another story, other sports added include skateboarding, sport climbing and surfing, all of which will debut at the delayed Olympics in Tokyo in 2021. In 2024, the dance-offs will uh, take place at a downtown venue in Paris under the plans 16 B-boys and 16 B-girls the term used for competitive breakers and break dancers, will compete in a one-on-one battle. Well, that'll be interesting to watch. Well, in an election debrief, immigration is a top issue for voters ahead of the Georgia runoffs. And yes, that's still to come. And that will decide, of course, the makeup of the Senate and who rules. And uh, under the heading of government and politics, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he wants Congress to pass a coronavirus relief bill with neither legal immunity for businesses nor state and local government relief. We'll continue to take a look at the news in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm sitting in live for Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, as well as live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. I'm sitting in for the next couple of days 
I'll miss you when you're gone. Again, returning to the news, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he wants Congress to pass a coronavirus relief bill with neither legal immunity for business nor state and local government relief. Uh, So liability, which is a big issue to uh, inviting your employees back to work, he says, no, thank you very much. Well, the deficit climbed 25 percent to $430 billion through November with another stimulus on the way. Well, presumably. And what could possibly go wrong? Democrats want to bring airmarks back. Well, pro-abortion members of Congress are pushing for taxpayer funding of abortion. So keep your eyes open. In national security, the House passed a defense spending bill with a veto-proof majority, despite Trump's uh, opposition. And FireEye cybersecurity tools were compromised in a state-sponsored attack, probably Russia, The Verge reports. Fourteen Fort Hood uh, leaders have been fired or suspended over in-based sexual assault and harassment. The American Military News is reporting. And around the nation, a California church has been found in contempt and fined over COVID. COVID diktats. Well, California expanded its COVID unemployment system, which has been uh, corrupted by $2 billion in fraud. And in the annals of the Social Justice Caliphate, anarchists erected a new autonomous zone here in Portland. Mayor Ted Wheeler, who has enabled such behavior in the past, has authorized all lawful means to clear it out. So far, nothing effective has been done. And a man in Taiwan was fined $3,500 for leaving a quarantine room for eight seconds. Oh, the humanity. Well, UK regulators on Wednesday said that people who have a significant history of allergic reactions shouldn't receive the new Pfizer BioNTech vaccine while they investigate two adverse reactions that occurred on the first day of the country's mass vaccination program. Well, one professor, the national medical director for the National Health Service in England, said health authorities were acting on recommendation from the Medical and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. As is common with new vaccines, the MHRI has advised on a precautionary basis that significant history, those who have a significant history of allergic reactions, do not receive this vaccination after two people with significant allergic reactions responded adversely yesterday. Well, the comments came as the doctor headed uh, the head of the MHRI told a parliamentary committee that the regulators had received reports of two allergic reactions from the vaccine. Well, we know from the very extensive clinical trials that was uh, this wasn't a feature, she said. But if we need to strengthen our advice now that we have had this experience with the vulnerable populations, the groups who have been selected as a priority, we get that advice to the field immediately. Well, the comments came as part of a general discussion on how the agency is going to continue to monitor people who receive the vaccine authorized for emergency use last week. And again, that's in the UK. President Trump announced on Thursday that Israel and Morocco have agreed to normalize relations. Under Morocco's deal with the U.S., the country is going to resume diplomatic relations between Morocco and Israel and expand economic and cultural cooperation to advance regional stability. That's a quote from the White House Liaison Office in Tel Aviv and Rabat. They're going to reopen immediately with embassies on track to open at a later date. Another historic breakthrough today, our two great friends, Israel and the Kingdom of Morocco, have agreed to full diplomatic relations, a massive breakthrough for peace in the Middle East, Trump wrote in a tweet. Well, the agreement is the fourth between Arab and Israeli countries over the last four months, and is part of a series of agreements with Arab nations that were previously hostile toward Israel. In October, President Trump announced that Sudan would recognize Israel and begin to normalize relations with the Jewish state. 
The U.S. also has overseen agreements between Israel and two other Arab states, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. The last Middle Eastern country to recognize Israel before this year's peace agreement was Jordan. That was way back in the 1990s. President-elect Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, revealed on Wednesday that he's under federal investigation for possible tax fraud, with a report saying the Justice Department is examining his overseas business dealings. Well, the probe also reportedly involves a laptop that belonged to Hunter Biden, the existence of which was first reported by The Post, and which contains communications and documents detailing some of his business dealings in China and Ukraine. Well, the younger Biden said that he's uh, taking the matter very seriously and is confident he handled his affairs legally and appropriately. Now, you might remember when Twitter banned the New York Post from reporting this story to begin with. That was before the election. It suddenly become relevant after. Chuck Grassley tweeted, for over a year, I I led a review of Hunter Biden's business deals overseas with big focus on China. But many Democrats and news organizations dismissed or ignored Some even baselessly said it was foreign disinformation. Now those same organizations are reporting uh, subpoenaing uh, subpoenaing Hunter Biden in tax fraud probe over his China ties. This was posted on Twitter. Molly Hemingway points out that our media, who defiantly censored this story, are so corrupt and disgusting, she writes. Uh, They, with big tech, blatantly meddled in the 2020 election and against the American people by hiding genuinely important national security stories about Biden after years of lying about Trump. And it continues. Well, Hunter Biden's China business deals uh, leading up to the 2018 probe was are detailed in a Senate report. And Rick Grinnell calls out CNN's Jake Tapper for belatedly covering the Hunter Biden story. A Senate probe found Hunter Biden's foreign transactions were repeatedly flagged as potential criminal activity. And GOP Representative Ken Buck is calling for Hunter Biden's special counsel in a letter to uh, Bill Barr. Ron Johnson is pushing back on calls for Hunter Biden and a special counsel to be um, called. In other news, Missouri and 16 other states have filed a brief supporting the Texas suit to delay the appointment of presidential electors. Missouri led a group of 17 states that filed a brief with the Supreme Court on Wednesday afternoon supporting the Texas lawsuit that's aimed at delaying the appointment of presidential electors from Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. The Texas suit and the states that support it say that only state legislatures can set new laws regarding how states appoint their presidential electors. Electors, rather. The integrity of our elections is of crucial importance to maintaining our republic both today and in future elections, Missouri's Attorney General Eric Schmidt said in a statement. The states of the stakes rather of protecting our constitution, defending our liberty, and ensuring that all votes are counted fairly couldn't be higher. With this brief, we are joining the fight. Well, the Trump 2020 campaign also filed a brief on Wednesday asking to join in the Texas suit. The illegal suspension or violation of state law thus calls directly into question the certification of the results of the elections in defendant states for Vice President Joe Biden, proposed plaintiff and interventions opponents in the election, it's brief said. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle, KGNW 820 The Word. Quick break. We'll be back. And when we return, we'll hear from Jeff Pack. He's the author of Witness to History, the story and history of Gideon's International. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I think most of us are familiar with the Gideons, but are we really 
informed about who they are, when they began, and what their core values are. I don't think I've ever spent an evening in a hotel without finding a Gideon Bible in the drawer. It is reassuring, it's comforting, and to think of the work that they've done over decades is exciting to me. Well, since its inception, more than two billion scriptures have been placed and distributed by the Gideons, not just in hotels, by the way. Jeff Peck writes about this in his latest book. He says the rapid moral decline of post-Christian societies means there's an even greater need for seeing and hearing God's word. But today we face some new challenges. Well, he's the author of Witness to History. It's the story about the Gideons that few people know. At a time when distributing Bibles in hotels and schools and businesses often comes with opposition, he says it's more important to do so now than ever. He cites opposition from organizations like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, but says this is not the time to withdraw from providing the words of life. So I'm excited that we're going to talk about the Gideons and the book we're uh, discussing, Witness to History, the Story of the Gideons International. Well, my guest is Jeff Pack. He is a marketing professional and former director of communications for the Gideons International. He's also speaker for the Gideons in churches and other events. He has uh, helped build several technology companies, and he sits on the boards of several nonprofits serving Nashville's refugee community. So he's from Nashville. We're just delighted to welcome Jeff Pack. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Georgine, and uh, greetings from Nashville. You know, I think most of us think we're familiar with the Gideons, but I think the depth and breadth of your work is probably lesser known than just the name itself and the Bibles we find when we're staying at a hotel or a motel anywhere across the country. Let's begin with the history and where the Gideons began and where they got the name. Sure. Um, the Gideons began in 1899 in Janesville, Wisconsin. And it was put together by the founders who were traveling salesmen. Um, and they would go across the country, you know, leave on Sunday night and come back on uh, Friday night, uh, staying in hotel lobbies. And uh, it was kind of the salesmen at the time had a poor reputation for gambling and profanity. And so the three men, uh, John Nicholson and Sam Hill and uh, Bill Knights, um, got together they two of them happened to be in the same room one night at a hotel in Janesville and um they uh just started thinking about what would an association be like if we could put it together that could hold men accountable so in the early years it was really just an accountability um between the the members and it grew rapidly and they had emblems so they were known wherever they uh, would go on trains uh, across the country and really what we're known for the bibles didn't come along until about uh, you know a decade later in uh, 1908 um when they had the idea of placing these bibles in the hotel rooms uh since they were all traveling there anyway and it was mm-hmm. great uh, as their witness to go ahead and start that so that's how really we got started You know, as uh, you mentioned, most people are familiar with the Gideons placing Bibles in hotels, but it really is about so much more. You mentioned the goal of uh, these men holding one another accountable as they're traveling across the country. But placing Bibles in places uh, like hotels, but not limited to hotels, was not the primary goal. Can you talk a little bit about what the goal was and is and some of the other places that Bibles were placed by the Gideons? Sure. Um, what uh, our goal is really the association of uh, Christian business and professional men for service. Uh, that would be our personal testimony and sharing our personal work and placing Bibles or portions thereof uh, ac- across the world. Now we're in 200 countries and where we place the Bibles, the majority of them go into schools 
and uh, universities uh, and students across the world still to this day, more so outside of the country, uh, will distribute 70 million scriptures this year. About 10% of those will be in the United States, and the rest will go all across the globe. Uh, largest uh, growing countries uh, where our work is is India, uh, Philippines, Brazil. So the scriptures will go to students, and they'll go into hospitals, uh, which we started in the 1920s. They'll go into uh, the military all across the world, which we started that in the 1940s with the World War II. That's just incredible. 2.4 billion Bibles uh, and New Testaments distributed to date. That is an incredible number. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that um, during the time when the Bibles were first distributed, there was uh, there were challenges. Do you believe our culture now is more open to or increasingly hostile to Christianity and to God's Word in particular? It depends on where you are, obviously, in the mm-hmm. world, some places in uh, Africa. It's very easy for us to walk into, um, you know, any school and uh, distribute uh, scriptures. Um, I've been chased by nuns in Argentina uh, <laughs> trying to distribute <laughs> scriptures. And, you know, I've been welcomed and both uh, asked to leave uh, at uh, distributions in the United States. So as far as the, the, our culture in general is pretty hostile, I mean, pick a subject, um, it's gotten that way. Uh, Christianity, you know, I think um, Martin Luther had said that, you know, we shouldn't be startled by persecution, but strengthened mm-hmm. by it. And, um, you know, as Christians, you know, you can go back as far as Job 5-7, where, you know, man is born to trouble, uh, surely as sparks fly upward. I think of that at, uh, every night when I light a fire in my backyard. So, But uh, w- the way we handle it is the key, is that we approach it with compassion and not anger, and that's the hard part. I know that placing Bibles is one aspect of the work of the Gideons, but also uh, encouraging people to read the scriptures and to be guided by the scriptures that have a relationship with Jesus. Can you talk a bit about how that part of the emphasis is is carried out? Uh, I think we tend to think of Gideon's as placing a Bible anonymously walking away, but that's only a part of the work. Right. And, um, you know, we, like on a campus, we'll go there and we'll actually, um, uh, you know, discuss and have conversations with people. It's funny uh, that some campuses actually allow us on in the freedom of speech area on the campus. Uh, and how, uh, you know, we try to feel, um, you know, I, you know, always have said pe- people never feel welcome in our churches until they feel welcome in our lives. So we try to establish relationship with people as we go uh, along in our um, daily um, work of uh, distributing scriptures. That could be in everything from the grocery store now uh, to restaurants. And really just trying to help people get them in a church. It doesn't have to be my church. It just try to you know, point them in the right direction of getting the church and then the pastors that we work with take over from there. You, in the uh, press release that I received from uh, your representative, you point out that Bible-centeredness is decreasing and skepticism is growing. And the percentage of adults who read the Bible daily has dropped from 14% to 9%, which is an unprecedented drop of 5%, according to Barna Research. It's amazing to me to consider that only 14% um, of adults read the Bible on a regular basis. So that's a challenge for anyone and certainly for the Gideons. Right. And I think it's uh, what Christians have, uh, I think, 4.4 Bibles in their houses each. Uh, 
So reading it and understanding it has always been, um, mm-hmm. you know, a d- difficult trip, and also you know the work of the devil to be able to do everything you can to keep it from that. Uh, sometimes I think people will see more scripture in their Facebook reads uh, than they will out of their Bible sitting on the uh, you know kitchen table. And we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, I would love to give you an opportunity to share some of the stories because it's uh, it's incredible to consider how God's word, when placed in the hands of some individuals by the Gideons, it has transformed their lives personally. It has saved their lives physically and has had a tremendous impact. So uh, just emphasizing the necessity and the benefit of God's word is one of the things I respect so much about the Gideons. But we'll get into that in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Jeff Pack. He is the uh, author of Witness to His. History, the story of the Gideons International, which is uh, fascinating when you consider these men who wanted to hold one another accountable, grew into an organization that has placed God's word in uh, places where people frequent uh, over the last, uh, what, 120 years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jeff Pack. He's the author of Witness to History, the story of the Gideons International. He is a marketing professional and former director of communications for the Gideons International. He's also a speaker for the Gideons in churches and other events. Well, just before the break, I um, invited you to talk about some of the stories of people whose lives have been transformed by God's word, whether that is their their inner life or even their their physical life being preserved. Can you give us a short story about the, the Gideons, uh, of a story of those who have received scriptures from the Gideons and the impact that has had? Uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Aaron Zahn is one example that comes to mind. Yeah, that's um, oldie but goodie. Um, yeah. Aaron Zahn was... Um, uh, from North Dakota, and he was in the war in 1945. He was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, when his unit came under attack, uh, he felt something hit his chest. And so he reached in his front pocket, and that's where he kept his Gideon New Testament. Uh, And as he took it out, he saw that the bullet had just penetrated uh, the New Testament and not his heart. And so he was curious as to where the bullet stopped, and it stopped right on Psalm 27, which is, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Now, that's great news, and we've had lots of people, lots of stories, even in the Vietnam War, of where, you know, they keep them in their top pocket, and and sometimes the bullets would hit there, and the New Testaments would uh, save them. So it's an incredible story, you know, hard to believe, but that's... That's precisely what happened. Well, tell us some uh, stories that may be a bit more up to date, because there are plenty about how God's word has impacted the lives of those who have received it in connection with the Gideons. Sure. Now, uh, Georgine, I know you're a musician. So you'll I am. Appreciate this, <laughs> uh, back in uh, the 1960s, there was a musician named Tommy, and uh, he had some hits on the radio, uh, but he also hit big with the booze and the pills and had no fear of chemicals and uh um, so lots of damages to hotel rooms, as we know musicians will sometimes do, not us. Uh, then one night in the Holiday Inn, he uh, picked up a Gideon Bible. And at the time, Tommy was into UFOs, um, spaceships and time travel. And he opens up the Gideon Bible to Ezekiel, of all places. And as we know, that's full of uh, wheels in the sky, chariots, blue crystals, um, And Tommy said, well, that's really God talking to me. But uh, then he got on with drinking and he went to the next city, the next tour. When he gets to the next city, he gets in the hotel and he sees a Bible. Now he thinks they're following him. 
So he gets the Bible back out and he's reading it and it's right there. He said, look, I'm just tired of of this. I'm tired of my life. And he gave his life to Christ. Uh, The gentleman was Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shondells. And he went on to write a number one song about his conversion, which is Crystal Blue Persuasion. Isn't that amazing? And most people would have no idea what that that song is about. (laughs) There'll be peace and good brotherhood, Crystal Blue Persuasion. (laughs) <laughs> so, but, you know, that's one good story. We can go on and on. A more recent one, maybe, um, um, is a gentleman by a student named Craig. And uh, Craig was going to the uh, Oklahoma City University. Uh, and he joined a fraternity where he got in a l- little bit of trouble. So to uh, keep the fraternity uh, on campus, he pledged, well, uh, he'll start a Bible study in the fraternity house. Well, on the day before the first Bible study, he didn't have a Bible. And there behold, walking across campus was a Gideon passing out Bibles that day. And he took that little New Testament and he started a small little Bible study in the basement of that fraternity. Uh, Well, Craig kept growing that small little study to become Life Church. His name is Craig Groeschel. And he now has a church with over 30,000 people in Edmond, Oklahoma. So we never know. Just where one little Bible having up. an impact on the lives one. of those who received it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, what, what were or are the drummers and how did they fit into the outreach plan of, of the Gideons? Sure. The drummers is uh, the term they used to use for uh, sales people that they would actually just, you know, go out and drum up new business. So each of the um, three men who started the Gideons, and by the way, you asked me about the name, it comes from Gideon 7, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, Judges 7 and the Gideon story there. Uh, but all of them were drummers, and uh, they would just be out on trains. Like I say, Sunday night they go out, Friday night they come back in. And uh, that's kind of where the, the term drummer, which is, you know, uh, salesman now. Yeah. Now, who are the Gideons today? We're we're familiar with that history now of what, uh, how it started. But who are the drummers today? Who are the men and and women who are distributing scriptures today? Are they from all walks of life, or do they tend to be among those who travel? Uh, it's people who are out in public uh, mostly. It'll it'll be businessmen still, lots of salespeople, uh, managers, and uh, people who have uh, time as well to be able to devote to the ministry and a flexible schedule. But you'll find we have uh, everything from doctors to lawyers and such, um, and um, it, it just continues to grow throughout. Uh, the world, each uh, you know, country is a little bit different profiles, but they're all professional men and women, and, uh, men and their wives, and uh, with one purpose to reach, uh, you know, boys and girls, men and women uh, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And today there's about a quarter million uh, members in over 200 countries, um, and we're able to pass out scriptures in about 100 languages. Do you find it more challenging today to play scriptures? Uh, do you, you mentioned a couple of examples where you have uh, faced opposition. Is that more common today or uh, or not? Uh, it's been uh, around us you know, since the beginning. In the 1950s, there was a lot of uh, objection to passing out Bibles. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, uh, you know, prayer was taken out of schools. Uh, in, in the 70s, we were able to go on campuses, which, you know, uh, college campuses are a little bit more liberal. Uh, but then uh, towards the 80s and 90s, had a lot of opposition from public schools. The Gideons always go by the law or by what the school board 
tells us, um, you know, there'll be, um, you know, uh, people out there defending it. In fact, I think one of your guests, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, we've worked with before. Um, and so there's always someone there to help us. But we, if we just, you know, stay in our guardrails and, and do what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, uh, we tend to be able to keep going in schools where we've had lots of opposition, um, you know, maybe in the, in the South, a little bit easier in the North and maybe get a little harder. Um, and, uh, we've been able to develop, uh, the life book, which is a, the, the book of Mark, and they're able to, we're able to work with the churches in their youth groups and be able to have them take it and share it with their friends. So we're working mm-hmm. through the pastors, through the uh, youth pastors, with just a really, you know, kind of um, teen version of uh, the book of Mark. And they're able to share it with their friends in the places where we can't really get into. So God, you know, always gives us a witty invention as the Bible says. And, uh, you know, that's uh, been our uh, latest way of being able to reach uh, students. Excellent. What do you think our um, our listeners might find most surprising about the Gideons? Um, well, they, they they should walk away with a, a you know a good history of uh, each chapter is a decade. So um, each chapter profiles the you know the events that happened during that decade and where the Gideons fit into that. For instance, when Russia fell, we were right behind there walking, uh, you know, Bibles across the uh, border as it fell, uh, Berlin wall, the same. And uh, as a decolonization of Africa, we were able to go into each in the fifties and the sixties, we we're able to go into each uh, of those countries as they uh, got their freedom. Um, so you'll, you'll pick up the history, but I think what you'll learn also is that, um, you know, as I say in the book that uh, everything has changed, but nothing, Nothing is different. People still need mm. Jesus That's after right. all these years. Um, you know, we don't have to make the Bible relevant. Uh, we just have to show its relevance. Absolutely. Well, I am so appreciative of your providing us with a resource to learn the history of the Gideons. I'm grateful for the work that has been done over the last 120 years to place God's word wherever it's been welcome and in some places where it's been unwelcome. And I thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. One final question. If our listeners are interested in uh, the Gideons, perhaps in, in the outreach, what's the best way for them to learn more? Sure. Um, the best place for the book and to learn a little bit about the Gideons um, uh, is witness to history.org. Again, that's witness to history.org. And you can find information about uh, the book as well as the ministry there and the way to order it, um, you know, to toll free today. Witness to history.org. Hey, Jeff Pack, thank you so much for talking with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as we've, as we've been discussing, Texas has filed suit, and they're hoping the Supreme Court will um, well prevent Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin from naming electors. Well, if uh, my next guest in writing his column points out that if Texas has its way, the 2020 presidential election won't be over soon. 
The state of Texas has filed an unprecedented motion with the U.S. Supreme Court, and they're asking for leave to fill a, uh, to file a complaint rather with the court against the states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin over the 2020 presidential election. Well, Hans von Spakovsky is the manager, uh, is a manager. He's also an election law reform initiative and senior legal fellow with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Uh, welcome, Hans, and thank you so much for joining us and helping to clarify what's what's going on. Sure thing, Georgine. So Texas has uh, filed suit. There have been 17 states that have also um, filed uh, in support of this effort. Explain what Texas is asking the Supreme Court to do. Sure. Well, as you said, they're asking for permission from the court to file a lawsuit against uh, those four states. Uh, the Supreme Court has what's called original jurisdiction over disputes between states, but their own rules say that before one state can sue another state, they first have to get that uh, approved by the Supreme Court. So that's what they filed on Monday. The complaint that they attached as an exhibit uh, basically goes through in great detail to describe the changes that were made in each of those four states to their, their state laws that govern the election process. And what Texas points out is that all of these changes that were made, most of them having to deal with absentee ballots, weren't made by the state legislatures. They were made by other executive branch officials in those state governments, uh, secretaries of state in Georgia and in uh, Pennsylvania, for example. In other uh, states, courts got involved and basically changed the rules. And what Texas says is, um, look, the electors clause of the U.S. Constitution says that the authority to set the rules for federal elections lies with state legislatures not other government officials. And therefore, all of these changes in the rules violated the U.S. Constitution and none of the votes that were accepted and counted as a result of these changes, um, that they were all invalid. Uh, They also make a claim uh, of a violation of the Equal Protection uh, clause of the 14th Amendment. That's basically the one-person, one-vote standard. And, and mm-hmm. Georgina, as you recall, 20 years ago in the Bush v. Gore decision, what the Supreme Court said is uh, the one-person, one-vote standard means that you can't treat uh, folks in a state, in different parts of the state, differently when it comes to their vote. You can't have one standard for what counts as a vote in one part of a state and a different standard in uh, another part of the state. And again, Texas goes through in great detail and describes how uh, voters in certain areas, for example, of Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh and Philly, were given more of an opportunity to vote than other parts of the state. All of this together, Texas says, um, violated the Constitution and devalued the weight of the votes cast in states like Texas that lawfully abided by the Constitution because of that. Texas asked the court to direct that the electoral college votes of those four states not be counted, that they be directed to uh, hold special elections to elect a new set of electors, or in the alternative, if they've already uh, certified their electors, that the state legislatures be directed to appoint a new set of electors in accordance with the U.S. Constitution. First of all, how likely is it that the Supreme Court is going to grant 
what Texas is asking them to do, the right to sue these four other states? Well, I have, as have others, I have characterized this as the legal equivalent of a Hail Mary pass, mm-hmm. which for folks who follow <laughs> football know don't, don't succeed very often, but they do occasionally. Um, look, some I've seen some analysts say that, that, that the Texas claims are frivolous. They're not frivolous. They actually uh, raise substantive claims about constitutional violations in those four states. Uh, and the complaint is very well uh, written and well argued. But that's the legal question. The political issue is that this is unprecedented. And it would be uh, something that never happened in American history before for the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn presidential election outcomes in four different states. So I I have to say, I think it's I think it's a long shot that the court will agree um, to allow this case to go forward and and to accept the case. Now, you made a distinction between the legal argument and the political fallout, if you will. If the Supreme yes. Court was not facing the political ramifications of a decision, does this case have sufficient merits that the court would likely, under different circumstances, grant Texas petition, uh, given the merits of the arguments that are made? Yes, I think so. And the the reason for that is that people need to understand that um, – we are we are facing all kinds of potential problems if we don't deter what happened in this election, which is, again, um, again, to give Pennsylvania as an example, look, under state law, the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots set by the state legislature was Election Day. And yet the secretary of state came out and said, well, we're just going to I'm just going to override that state law and extend the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots to three days after election day if that's allowed to stand that someone like a secretary of state can simply override the state statutes that govern elections look you're going to have a situation in which potentially elected officials partisan elected officials like governors and secretaries of state are going to simply change the rules on their own in a way that they think will benefit the candidates mm-hmm. of their political party. And you just can't have that. You know, the, if the legislature wants to change the rules of the elected representatives of all the people of the state want to change the rules, that's fine. But to have just one lone wolf in a state say, oh, I'm changing the rules, you just can't have that. Yeah, well, the question is whether or not we can have that, <laughs> I suppose. You can't <laughs> remove this uh, this decision uh, from the context in which it's being asked, um, right. what's the remedy here? The Supreme Court is, the, you know, the Electoral College, what they meet on the 14th. The Supreme Court has to make some kind of a decision or decide to do nothing. Uh, and these things that, that are pointed out in the Texas suit have to be addressed. What's the right approach to these substantive um, questions that are raised and these violations that are pointed out in the suit? Well, look, one thing the court could do, although it would be unusual, is to accept the case, issue a ruling that chastises these states for what they did, and, and, and basically creates a precedent for saying that courts can't, uh, sorry, that states can't engage in this kind of behavior because it violates the Constitution, but then say, however, the remedy that is being asked for overturning the elections in four states is so drastic that we're not going to grant that. And I mean, that's that's kind of like a, a middling 
a middling compromise of trying to deal with a legal issue with without overturning an election, which would cause huge fights and debates. Um, I, I don't think they're going to go that way. I suspect they're simply not going to allow the case to go forward. But that would be one thing they could potentially do. Well, we'll certainly watch with interest uh, over the next few days to see what the Supreme Court says and wonder about the future of elections in the U.S. if some of these violations are allowed to stand. Hans von Spakovsky, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for your insight. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Again, Hans von Spakovsky with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Um, also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. Well, Rudy Giuliani appeared with witnesses alleging voter fraud in a heated Michigan hearing. Now, it's rather surprising since he's been diagnosed with COVID, so I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. But Trump's legal team celebrated after a Michigan judge allowed the probe of Dominion voting machines. The Nevada GOP is vowing to appeal after a judge dismissed Trump's campaign's latest suit there. Well, Swalwell's father and brother are no longer Facebook friends with a Chinese spy after reports uh, of continued ties, and the SpaceX Starship test flight ended in a massive fireball, but Elon Musk says it was still a success. And top Republicans in the Wisconsin Assembly Elections Committee may back the attempt to flip the state to Trump. Well, the Los Angeles County Supervisor couldn't produce COVID-19 studies to back up the county's uh, ban on outdoor dining, even though she attempted to. And Mario Cuomo says that um, New York's tax hikes are likely on the way even if Congress approves aid. Delta Airlines put 700 passengers on their no-fly list over COVID-19 mask rules or their defiance against them. And DoorDash IBO turned CEO Tony Zhu and co-founders Andy Fang, Stanley Tang into billionaires. Apple and Google plan to stop X mode from collecting location data from users' phones. So that's good news in the future, I suppose. Well, a study indicates that the only group with improving mental health during this uh, pandemic are those who attend church regularly. Well, Gallup revealed how COVID has people rating their mental health lower than ever. Of the 19 different categories, from gender to household income, there's only one where the percent has gone up, people attending religious services weekly. Most other categories show a double-digit dip. And YouTube plans to remove 2020 election videos challenging the outcome of the election. PJ Media points out that in a post published on Wednesday, YouTube announced updates to their work supporting the integrity of the 2020 U.S. election. From YouTube, they say, which which by the way is owned by Google, our main goal going into the election season was to make sure we're connecting people with the authoritative information while also limiting the reach of misinformation and removing harmful content. Later, we also work to make sure that the line between what is removed and what is allowed is drawn in the right place. Our policies prohibit misleading viewers about where and how to vote. We also disallow content alleging widespread fraud or errors changed the outcome of an historic U.S. presidential election. However, in some cases, that has meant allowing controversial views on the outcome or process of counting votes of a current election as election officials have worked to finalize counts. So it'll be interesting to see what YouTube permits to remain and what it will scrub. California continues to bleed entrepreneurs who flee the state for friendlier governments. No big surprise there. And officials watched an unnamed Mexican drone drop off 
half a million dollars in drugs. They recovered the drugs, but not any of the people. The drone headed back into Mexico. Well, the court struck down, uh, struck a blow uh, against California restrictions on religious services. This is another blow. And Minneapolis voted to cut millions from their police budget during record crime rates. Michigan Democrat, a Michigan Democrat, has um, been removed from a committee and is facing investigation after making threats against Trump supporters. I don't know what's happening to that unity speech, the presumed um, president-elect made, and a Virginia district plans to rename schools named after founding fathers. Johns Hopkins, long believed by the university to be an abolitionist, apparently owned slave, and they're calling for the cancellation. Well, at least they will. Well, the U.S. has added tumultuous Nigeria to the list of worst religious freedom violators. There is something akin to a genocide going on there. And China has restricted U.S. official travel to Hong Kong. And stranger than fiction news, Mount Everest just got a smidge taller after China and Nepal finally agreed on its height. Of course, the mountain didn't change. They just agreed on what they are going to uh, acknowledge is its height. On the lighter side, an iconic Atlanta bar has been saved from a longtime customer raising $170,000 to keep the small business open. Sadly, lots of small business open uh, business owners don't have that luxury. This day in history, 1964, Martin Luther King Jr. received his Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, saying he accepts it with an abiding faith in America and an audacious faith in the future of mankind. I wonder where that optimism and faith have gone. On this day in history, 1817, Mississippi is admitted as the 20th state of the Union. 1898, a treaty is signed in Paris, officially ending the Spanish-American War. 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt becomes the first American to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for helping to mediate an end to the Russian-Japanese War. 1994, Yasser Arafat, Shimon Peres, and Yitzhak Rabin receive the Nobel Peace Prize, pledging to pursue their mission of healing the anguished Middle East. That healing process still in process. 1996, South African President Nelson Mandela signs the country's new constitution into law during a ceremony in Sharpville. And finally, on this day in history, 2007, former Vice President Al Gore accepts the Nobel Peace Prize with the call for humanity to rise up against the looming climate crisis and stop waging war on the environment. Sadly, much of the information in his um, celebrated film was inaccurate. Well, as I mentioned, Missouri and 16 other states have filed briefs supporting the Texas suit to delay the presidential elector appointment. Whether or not the Supreme Court is likely to take this issue on was the subject of my conversation with Hans von Spakovsky. The courts are loath to overturn an election, and that will weigh heavily, I'm certain, with the justices as they take this issue up in the days ahead. In other news, a group of 27 Republican congressmen urged President Donald Trump to order a Justice Department-appointed special counsel investigation of legitimate questions about election irregularities. And whether or not you embrace the notion that there were irregularities or fraud, there were at least some documented incidences that they are calling upon. Uh, They're calling them legitimate questions about the election irregularities. Well, the Republican congressman asked the president to direct Attorney General William Barr to appoint a special counsel, according to a letter uh, that was sent to the White House on Wednesday. Representative uh, Lance Gooden Paul Gosser, Representative Louis Gohmert and Scott Perry, as well as uh, Representative Jody Heiss were among the 27 who signed on to the letter. 
They wrote, the American people deserve a definitive resolution to the uncertainty hovering over the outcome of our election, but legitimate questions of voter fraud remain unanswered. Barr said on December 1st that the Department of Justice has yet to find any evidence of election fraud that could sway the result, sparking criticism from conservatives. Well, Trump hesitated when asked if he still had a confidence in Barr, saying the Department of Justice has been asked on multiple occasions to launch an investigation into this matter, but inaction from the department along with public comments made by the attorney general indicate a lack of willingness to investigate the irregularities your campaign and other elected officials across the nation have alleged. The Republican um, congressman continued, the appointment of a special counsel would establish a team of investigators whose sole responsibility is to uncover the truth and provide the certainty America needs. Well, several news organizations, including the Associated Press, Fox News and others, declared former Vice President Joe Biden the winner of the election on the 7th of November. Trump's campaign has filed numerous lawsuits alleging widespread fraud, but courts across the country have handed the campaign many defeats. Texas filed the uh, lawsuit we mentioned earlier against Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, arguing the state altered their election procedures in an unconstitutional way. Our country stands at an important crossroads, crossroads rather, the lawsuit says either the Constitution matters and must be followed, even when some officials consider it inconvenient or out of date, or it is simply a piece of parchment on display at the National Archives. We ask the court to choose the former. We'll find out what the court will choose, I'm certain, within the next day or so. Well, the Joint Congressional Committee on Inaugural Ceremonies voted down a resolution to acknowledge Joe Biden as the president-elect as President Trump and other Republicans continue lawsuits challenging the results of the election. There are three Republican and three Democrats on that panel from both the House and the Senate. Uh, Republicans said they uh, made the decision because there are election-related processes that need to play out first before a president-elect is decided. Well, it's not the job of the Joint Congressional Committee on Inaugural Ceremonies to get ahead of the electoral process and decide who are we are inaugurating, one of the members said in a statement. McConnell, speak, uh, speaking to reporters, noted that the Electoral College meets uh, to elect the president on December 14th, and there is still time. Again, the uncertainty remains. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to talk about what's happening here at home as well as abroad. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, Portland only. Well, Diane Feinstein is being um, scrutinized by her fellows, uh, saying that she's experiencing cognitive decline. It's been evident for several years. New Yorker's Jane Myers um, is uh, pointing out, and they're trying to urge her uh, to consider perhaps retiring. Well, it's interesting that uh, she was criticized for her expression uh, of friendship with a Republican colleague. Uh, civility apparently equals cognitive decline. Um, and the fact that the subject is being uh, discussed at this point, given what was uh, not permitted to be said with Biden and some of the questions related to his cognitive abilities. But anyway, Senator Feinstein is 87 years old. And sources say, and this is according to The New Yorker, that she's seriously struggling. Well, staff writer Jane Mayer, she published the story on Thursday, citing people familiar with the Democratic uh, California senator uh, and her current situation, saying her apparent cognitive decline has been evident for several years. That's a quote. Those familiar with the senator's current state told The New Yorker that Feinstein, who again is 87, 
has been seriously struggling and that her short-term memory has um, grown so poor that she often forgets she's been briefed on a topic accusing her staff of failing to do uh, to do so just after they have done so. Well, during a recent Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on big tech, then-ranking member Feinstein asked Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey the same question twice. Dorsey answered the question the same way the second time that she asked it. Well, Feinstein's office didn't immediately respond to an inquiry on the subject. The mental fitness of other aging politicians, including President-elect Joe Biden, President Trump, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, has also been questioned. Feinstein has, um, was first elected to uh, serve in 1992 of one, as one of California's first two female senators. She's mostly stayed out of the limelight, just the... Uh, until the Judiciary Committee hearing mistake. Uh, the senator announced on November 23rd that she would not seek re-election to keep her role as the top Democrat on the committee after receiving criticism over her handling of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation. Uh, she wasn't critical enough of her political rivals. Former aides told um, the New Yorker that the rumors of her, sen- of her cognitive decline are exaggerated, while others familiar with her situation say it has been uh, ongoing and that she uh, gets upset when she forgets something. The staff is in such a bad position, one former Senate aide said, uh, they have to defend her and make her seem normal. Well, another aide to working for a different Democratic senator told Mayor that Feinstein is an incredibly effective human being, but there's definitely been deterioration in the last year. She's very different mode now. And that's to be expected, but it does raise questions about whether or not there is a level of fitness that's lost with the aging. Now, that's not true for everyone. There are people who are just as sharp as ever at 87. But when there's evidence of decline, what is the remedy? And it's interesting that she has become the subject of discussion primarily because of the criticism she received during that Amy Comey Barrett hearing and the affection she showed an old friend who sat on the other side of the political aisle. Ever since then, she's been something of a pariah to some members of her own party. So it's rather interesting how... um, individuals are chosen or avoided uh, based on uh, how what their standing is with their fellows in the, their own party and the other party. Well, the Federal Trade Commission and 48 state attorneys uh, general, they filed an antitrust lawsuit against Facebook on Wednesday, which, if successful, could lead to the first court-ordered breakup of a U.S. corporation in a decade. Not the first time, but in a decade. Well, the lawsuit claims that Facebook has engaged in anti-competitive practices and attempted to stymie or gain control over rivals to monopolize its social media network. In particular, the suit seeks to end Facebook's control over WhatsApp and Instagram. Facebook recognizes that its continued ownership and operation of Instagram and WhatsApp neutralizes their direct competitive threats, the FTC lawsuit states. It goes on to say that Facebook continues to monitor the industry for competitive threats and likely would seek to acquire any companies that constitute or could be repositioned to constitute threats to its personal social media networking monopoly. Well, the FTC is seeking divestiture of Facebook assets, divestiture or reconstruction of business, including but not limited to Instagram and or WhatsApp and such other relief sufficient to restore the competition that would exist absent the conduct alleged in the complaint. So that'll be an interesting story that will develop over the next weeks and months. Well, YouTube announced that from December the 9th, which was yesterday, it's going to block and remove content that contains statements alleging widespread fraud or errors change the outcome of an historical uh, U.S. presidential election. The Google-owned firm said that 
It was because the safe harbor deadline on December 8th in the presidential election had passed, claiming that enough states have certified their election results. However, there are still outstanding legal challenges, as we've discussed here today, including one in the Supreme Court that could change the outcome of the election. It's not likely, but it has the potential. A YouTube statement made no mention of these, and it made no mention of the December 14th Electoral College vote date. Well, the Epic Times um, uh, is one of the newspaper, and there are others who haven't yet declared an, a winner to the election. But according to the San Bruno, California-based company, we will start removing any piece of content uploaded today or any time after that misleads people by alleging that widespread fraud or errors change the outcome of the election in line with our approach towards historical U.S. presidential elections. I know many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, would like to see it just come to an end. At the same time, we want to make sure it's decided correctly. It's highly unlikely, let me just repeat that, it's highly unlikely that the presidential election will be overturned, but there are legitimate challenges to element aspects of how the election was uh, undertaken that should be addressed even if the presidential election outcome remains the same. Well, SpaceX launched its uh, latest prototype rocket on Wednesday, and they reached uh, their highest altitude to date. But the test flight ended in a massive fireball when the spacecraft attempted to land. It was really fascinating to watch. I don't know if you've seen it, but you can find it online. The futuristic Starship SN8 launched from SpaceX's facility in Boca Chica. Boca Chico. <laughs> I always laugh when I say that. Boca Chica, Texas into a clear blue sky soaring eight miles in the air over the Gulf of Mexico. After skimming the stratosphere, the starship returned to the Earth's surface, exploding as it hit the ground. Well, low pressure in the fuel header tank during the landing, uh, the landing burn led to a high uh, touchdown velocity, resulting in a hard landing. It was rather exciting to watch, but not a success. Well, despite the explosion, the CEO of SpaceX, Elon Musk, he said the unmanned test flight was a success and his team got all the data that it needed. Successful ascent, switch over to header tanks and precise flap control to landing point. He tweeted, adding that South Texas is the gateway to Mars. Well, Musk had uh, downplayed the likelihood of complete success going into the test flight, saying last month that the chances of the Starship landing in one piece are about one-third. Well, the Starship is reusable transportation. It's a system that SpaceX hopes will someday carry the first humans to Mars. Now, I'm not interested in space travel, but there are those, in terms of personal space travel, but there are those who are not only interested, but willing to put themselves in harm's way to engage in it. I admire those people. I'm just not one of them. So it'll be interesting to see if it happens in my lifetime or perhaps yours. Well, two prior test flights of the space vehicle earlier this year were successful, though both attained much lower altitudes. No one was injured in the crash. So that's one good uh, good side note in the whole affair. Well, the Portland Red House, as it's now uh, known, has been occupied. It was launched spontaneously. Protesters barricaded themselves for the long haul and it continues. Well, the initial response to police showing up at what is referred to simply as the Red House on Mississippi was rather frantic. But a day later, occupiers appeared determined to hold any incursions at bay. By Wednesday, they had stockpiled homemade shields, uh, other defensive gear. They piled up rocks and bricks. They laid down homemade spike strips to puncture the tires of any vehicles that would try to breach the barricade. A group of social justice activists have fortified their position at the small red house on North Mississippi Avenue. 
after camping on the property in recent months to support the Kinseys. It's an African-American and indigenous family who've lived there for decades but lost their home to foreclosure. Well, the activists had scrambled Tuesday morning to respond to Multnomah County Sheriff's deputies and Portland police officers who arrived to re-secure the home, which has already been resold, uh, for the new owner, a developer that plans to demolish it. We're going to talk more about that when we come back from the break. The Red House in Portland. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, once again, Portland has made national news headlines. This time, Portland's Red House occupation is what they're talking about. A group of social justice activists fortified their position at a small red house in North Mississippi Avenue after camping on the property in recent months to support the Kenny family. Uh, who have lived there for decades but lost their home to foreclosure. My understanding is a member of the family was ill. They took out a second mortgage to pay medical costs and lost the home. Well, police hoped to avoid further inflaming the situation. They left the scene quickly when they arrived on Tuesday morning after intense clashes with protesters, and that gave activists the opportunity to take over the house and the surrounding areas. Then, um, said Brad Ness, who's another longtime neighborhood resident, carloads of protesters arrived, piled onto the street, strapped on body armor and knee pads. He says that over the hours that followed, he watched as truckloads of wood, car tires, fencing and other material were unloaded from uh, for the fortification of the uh, now block off, blocked off street around the so-called Red House. Well, this was after more than three months of complaints associated with the Red House and the surrounding area, neighbors having to live with it. From September through November, police said that they received more than 80 calls about the property, including reports in uh, on fights, shots fired, burglary, theft, vandalism, noise, trespassing, threats by people with guns, blocks, traffic, sidewalks and access to their homes. Well, now the occupier's blockade is stretched at least two and a half blocks long from North Skidmore to Blandina along North Mississippi and Albina Avenues with groups of black clad guards posted at each intersection. Well, Mayor Wheeler has said that he's uh, not going to allow the protesters to establish an autonomous zone, which, of course, they already have, like the one activists built in Seattle last summer. He said that he has authorized the police to use all lawful means to end the illegal occupation in the gentrifying North Portland neighborhood. Well, so far, police have stayed away. Portland Police Chief Chuck Lavelle, he has uh, issued a videotaped uh, message Wednesday morning to those engaged in the barricaded zone. Leave it behind. Put down your weapons. And they have weapons. They're uh, apparently well supplied and allow the community to return to order, he said in the video. Well, he tweeted another statement in the afternoon saying Portland police share the community's concerns about the barricades, occupation and criminal activity on North Mississippi. We are aware of the stockpile of weapons and the presence of firearms. We are aware of the threats to community, to media, to police. The Portland police will enforce the law and use force if necessary to restore order to the neighborhood. Well, activists on the scene showed no sign that they were letting down their guard or planning to leave. So protesters and the Kinney family held uh, an afternoon news conference in front of the Red House asking for the public to stand with them. Help us occupy this land, said an activist and community organizer. Help us do this so that we can protect other families that uh, they're going to do this to. Again, they lost the home uh, because they couldn't make the payments and it's already been sold. Uh, they will target other black and brown families because of the anti-blackness that exists within this system. 
well, truthfully, it has little to do with blackness and much more to do with uh, mortgage. The house was built in 1896. It belonged to the Kinney family for about six decades, starting in the 50s. According to the Red House on Mississippi website, the Kinney's problems with the house began when they took out a new mortgage to pay defense lawyers after a family member was arrested in 2002. I think I had originally said it was an illness, but apparently a legal problem. Well, the family hasn't provided any documentation showing the terms of its mortgage loan. The first in 2002 was an adjustable rate mortgage, according to the court documents, though not uncommon. Those loans are problematic for many borrowers uh, in the run-up to the financial and mortgage crisis in 2008. Um, That uh, 2002 loan was refinanced in 2004, however, and the Kinney's remained current on the refinanced loan until they stopped making payments in January of 2017, according to court documents. So that's, you know, several years ago. In 2018, the lender foreclosed for non-payment, sold the house to a developer in an auction, public records show. But the members of the Kenny family kept living in the house. This is 2018. Well, the family matriarch is a 62-year-old, uh, said during the news conference that a predatory loan caused the family financial problems. She described how law enforcement officers arrived to serve an eviction notice in September. It was truly unfair for that to happen to my family. Why this is taking place, the people or originally uh, saw the devastation that was taking place that day. Well, the family has said that when authorities arrived to force relatives from the home on Tuesday morning, they later returned uh, to the property to find it trashed. Well, on Wednesday, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office said deputies had the right to use reasonable force to enter the property. The agency said contractors hired by the current property owners then altered and removed objects inside the home they now own. And early Wednesday... A group within the barricade held a prayer circle Wednesday morning attended by um, a prominent uh, black activist during the Portland protest against police violence and systematic racism. The world is watching us, she said, at that prayer circle. It is our duty to keep fighting with every breath, with our souls and our hearts. Well, watching the scene, uh, the blockade on the street makes it really inconvenient for the neighbors, says one neighbor and residents. But protesters are inconvenient or protests in general. Uh, One neighbor who declined to be identified because he's worried about retaliation from the occupier said that as early as three months ago, residents had complained about the chronic cycle of vandalism, trespassing, noise violations by people camped out on the property. The neighbor said the crowd has grown from a consistent five to ten tents on the property since September to 300 protesters at times on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, It is a challenge for the city. It's a challenge for law enforcement what to do. When a home has been lost by the previous owners over a period of years, permitted to remain there, and now the current owners insist on taking possession of the property they have now purchased. While others in the neighborhood are trying to maintain their normal routines, the popular Albina Press Coffee House just outside the occupied area remains open and is doing a brisk business. Apparently, occupiers like coffee. And a woman who said she lives just a couple of doors north of the barricaded avenue said police had been noticeably absent from the area since Tuesday morning and that during that time, the barricades had become more and more heavily layered. Honestly, I think it's bizarre, she said. It's definitely, definitely makes for a weird tension in the neighborhood. And it continues despite the fact that the mayor has said uh, legal use of force is permitted and that he will not permit an occupying force, an autonomous zone, if you will, as was the case in Seattle. This has been going on for months. There is an autonomous zone, and thus far, no changes have been made. We'll continue to follow what has now become a national news story.
Well, tomorrow is Friday, and we are going to do what we typically do on Fridays. We'll take a look at the hard news, certainly throughout the program, but we'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news and maybe put a little smile on your face as we near the holiday that we celebrate the birth of our Savior. So looking forward to having a bit of fun tomorrow on the program. We'll also share our interview of the week, so I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, as well. want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Really appreciate that, Dan. He's sort of banned from his own space for hours in the day. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.